Amen. Amen. The Lord is good and 90 years of God's faithfulness. You scroll through those pictures about how God moved in the midst of, of trials and persecution and different things that happened in the life of God's church. And uh, you, you, you heard the testimony from our friend David, uh, who the Lord brought here for such a time as this. And one person, two people, multiple people in God's church were used at that very moment to impact this man's life. And church, this is why we entitled this sermon, For Such a Time as This. We've been celebrating uh, 90 years here at Northwest for the last five weeks, um, and we've gone through some of the sayings of the church, where, where they love a feller, uh, by faith, new horizons, beauty for ashes, preach the word of God. And this last phrase is for such a time as this. And it comes from the book of Esther. The Lord placed this on my heart four or five weeks ago. We were in different prayer times with different people in our body, in our staff, in our men's group, in different people. And this phrase kept coming out of the mouth of our people before the virus came, before all of these things happened. And God is using this opportunity, this time, as an opportunity for his church to raise up for this moment. 90 years ago, Northwest Baptist gathered in a small home and part of, of, at this part of the city, of Oklahoma City. And throughout the years, they've endured financial crisis, building crisis, church disagreements, differences in leadership, changing demographics. And yet... We are a lighthouse for the gospel. We are still a lighthouse for the gospel on 23rd and Drexel for one purpose, and one purpose alone, for the glory of God. May we never forget it's all for his glory. May we as Northwest Baptists never forget Everything that we do is for the glory of God. Who knows, maybe God placed us here for such a time as this. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, we're going to read in verse 10. This is the crux of the story. We're going to get into the story in a minute, but this is the crux of this story. Esther chapter 4, verse 10. Esther is after Ezra and Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's on page 412 in my Bible. I'm not sure if that's going to help you this morning, but it is there in Esther chapter 4, verse 10. This is what it says, Esther chapter 4, verse 10. Yeah, we have two or three people standing in our audience. So if you want to stand at home as we read God's word, this is what we do. So stand as we read God's word in chapter 4, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hadhak, 
and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning when we come to read this story, to hear about this story of Esther, Father, we pray that we would be reminded of your sovereignty, of your goodness, that you're working out a plan even in the midst that we cannot see it. Lord, and you have placed us here during this time for such a time as this. May we have the faith and the boldness to stand strong, to stand up and do what you've called us to do. Father, may we be a church who proclaims the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are moments in everyone's life that you are, know are such a time as this moment. Times of crisis in which you're placed in this exact moment of time for something greater than yourself. Times in which God has orchestrated all of these events to culminate and that you are the instrument that God graciously causes to use. When I was about three years old, my dad had gotten a new job, and he, of course, had moved to New York City. My mom was stuck in L.A. with a three-year-old and a newborn. And uh, she was trying to go to the grocery store, and anytime you, you've uh, had, had an opportunity to have a three-year-old and a newborn, you'll know that that doesn't work very well, trying to go to the grocery store, have a, have a toddler and a newborn baby. And so she's trying to go to the grocery store just so she can have some food. 
And I, you know, the curious young man that I am, decided that I was going to figure out how the hinge of the car door worked. And, and of course, I'm looking in there and I'm seeing the grease and the things that are happening. And immediately as she's taking care of the baby and I'm looking in the hinge door, the car door slams shut on my finger. And at this moment in time, you have a moment of crisis to where you have a toddler whose finger is dangling off and you have a newborn screaming in the car. What do you do at this moment? Do you just put him in the car seat and drive to the hospital? Do you wait for the ambulance? What do you do at this moment? God provided someone who was there, a man who was just going about his daily routine, going to the grocery store. And immediately the man wrapped the finger and he placed my mom in the car with me in her lap. And he said, I'll drive you to the hospital. Well, you can see a few years later, I still have my finger. This man saved my finger. They sewed it back together. In such a way, God has placed Esther for such a time as this, something even greater than a small finger, to deliver God's people from destruction. Taking a young girl who is an orphan who doesn't have parents, who's a foreigner living in a foreign country under a different people than her own and takes her to the place of the palace for this moment. The brilliance of God's providence on display This is a foreshadowing of when God would bring someone else to lay down their life for his people. Only this time, this person would be the perfect sacrifice for sinners, making a way for salvation for all people, all nations, who will come to him in faith and believe. You see, the story of Esther is relevant to us today as a church, as a people. In the moment in which we find ourselves, God wants to raise up ordinary people to do extraordinary works for his glory. (coughs) The story begins with God's people being scattered all over the world because of their idolatry. The many kings who have led them astray. God's people have been in captivity from the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem has been burned. The temple has been destroyed. We see in Daniel that that God's people are taken away from their, their home. And somewhere in the process, the Persians take over for the Babylonians. In 536 B.C., Cyrus sends the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this is where we pick up in the book of Ezra, where the people are summoned back 
to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And between the temple being rebuilt and Nehemiah coming back to build up the walls, this is where we find the story of Esther in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, around 486 B.C. The story begins in chapter 1 with the king. His name is Ahasuerus, King Xerxes for you historians. But he likes this place of king. He likes his greatness. He likes to show his power. He likes to show his authority. So he throws immense party. And we're talking not a quarantine party, not with very few people, your family only, I guess it's down to. But we're talking about a six-month party with governors and people from all over the world coming to his palace. For, the Bible says for 180 days, this was his party. But guess what? That was just the pre-party because after the 180 days, he had the after party. One week of another party in which he sends out an edict for drinking and he says in this edict there is no compulsion it's an all-inclusive deal as much drinking as each person desired so you get a, a picture for who this guy is this king who Esther will eventually marry and in verse 10 of chapter 1 it says this on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine he commanded all of these people who served in his presence of King Azarharis to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples, the princes, her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Probably this means that he was summoning her to come with just her royal crown on to, to have all of his drunk friends see his wife and of course Vashti as she should refuses to come and all his friends are together here and he's angry and there not only is he angry but then his friends gather together and we see in verse 17 it says, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So all his friends and throughout all the land, they're, they're worried that all the women and all the wives will have a problem. So they have this plan. Let's give her crown to another so the king and his friends come up with this pageant for the next queen. Think of it like a 400s BC bachelor show, if you will. I know some of you are laughing at home. Thank you very much for laughing at home. I appreciate that. But there's nothing new under the sun. So we have this king who's the poster child for male chauvinism, and he's searching for this queen. Not the best dude, and he's going throughout the kingdom in search of his queen. 
And we're introduced here to Esther, whose name, whose Hebrew name is Hadassah. But she's orphaned as a young girl. Mordecai, her cousin, would raise her. In Esther 2, 7, it says this. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So she is chosen as one of the contestants. Now, now we're not sure if Esther is forced to go into this contest or if she wants to go on her own accord. But it looks like most likely that she doesn't have a choice in the matter. And in the process, she doesn't make known her identity as a Jew, as a people of God, even hiding her real name, Hadassah. There's no mention of a struggle as there was in the book of Daniel with Daniel or Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And even it puzzles some commentators because God's name is not even mentioned in this book. And part of that reason is because of Esther and Mordecai. And so this question of why haven't Mordecai and Esther returned with God's people to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel? They don't make a mention that they are part of God's people, the Hebrew people. Not sure if God is on the forefront of their minds or not, but God's providence, his fingerprints are all over this book. Look at verse 20 with me of chapter 2. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Esther is favored in the contest and wins the contest. She becomes the queen. God places an orphaned foreigner as queen. Throughout the word of God, we see all sorts of not-so-perfect individuals with checkered pasts like Ruth and Moses and Peter and Abraham and Mary and Paul. And we see God graciously using these people, not because they are perfect, not because they are the greatest, but because he wants to show his power and his might. And Esther is no different. And Mordecai is no different. We're introduced to Mordecai who's working outside of the gate. And he hears a plot to kill the king. And he notifies Esther who notifies the king. And they stop this plot. and saves the king's life. We'll come back to this as an important piece of the story. Enter chapter 3. Right? We have Haman the villain as Haman the Agagite. The Agagites were the sworn enemy of God's people. And during the, the Feast of Purim, I, 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 uh, 
I understood this in my, in my research this week, but during the Feast of Purim, Orthodox Jews celebrate this event and they would gather and tell the story to people, <coughs> the story of Esther to their people. And so when they gathered together and each time they tell the story, they use the name Haman the Agagite. And every time they said the, his name, the children would hiss and boo. So we're going to try this at home, you guys, at home. You're going to try this at home. When I say the name Haman, you're going to hiss and boo, not just children, everybody involved. It'll be fun. Trust me, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it on your, on your couch at home. So chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Oh, that's good. That's good. I like that. The son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set him his throne above all officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were the king gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Good job for, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Okay. So you can stop hissing, by the way. We're, we're going to keep moving forward, but that was a great job. You guys did fantastic. Haman is furious that Mordecai pays him no respect, does not bow down to him. him. So what does Haman do? He devises this plan, not just to kill Mordecai, but all the Jews. And he goes to the king. King is probably more about partying than he is about making edicts. And he takes a pretty hands-off approach here on his leadership. And thinking about the next party he may plan, I guess. And signs off to destroy God's people, all of them, the Jews, for cash payments. To those who annihilate them. So Mordecai obviously hears what is going to happen. He hears this edict. He hears about the specific day that it's going to happen. God's people are going to be destroyed. And he gets word to Esther. And we find in the main crux of our text in chapter 4, verse 11, Esther's response here to Mordecai. Verse 11 of chapter 4. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out this, the golden scepter so that he may live. For as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. <clears throat> now, Esther is thinking to herself, how is this going to work, Mordecai? Do you remember Vashti? Now you're going to go and ask me to go in front of the king, uninvited, into his court? And talk about the political decisions that he's making in front of everyone. And by the way, the king has had nothing to do with me 
for the past month. This is Mordecai's response to Esther. For if you keep silent, verse 14, if you keep silent at at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is her defining moment. This is the moment which God has put into her heart. What's she going to do for such a time as this? Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So she goes into the king's court and the king offers his golden scepter, receiving her and says, what do you need of me, my queen? And Esther, being a wise woman, appeals to his side that likes to party and says, hey, I'm going to host a feast, a banquet. Why don't you bring your friend Haman? I'm sure that he will come tomorrow night. So they come to the feast and they enjoy the feast. And (coughs) Esther says, we're going to have another feast tomorrow night. And as they leave the feast, Mordecai sees, I'm, I'm sorry, Haman sees Mordecai. And Mordecai does his thing, not bowing down to Haman. And he is irate. He is mad. And he goes and tells his wife, and his, he's in his distraught. And his wife and his friends counsel him to make a gallows 75 feet high. And tomorrow, go to the king and ask to hang Mordecai on these gallows. Well, that night, as this is happening, the king can't sleep. And he asks for one of his people to read him a bedtime story from the book of the memorial deeds that have been done. And they come to the story of Mordecai saving the king's life and telling about this plot to kill the king. And the king asks, what have we done for this Mordecai? And his people respond, we have done nothing for him. And the king says, who's in the court right now? And it's morning, it's the next day, and Haman walks in to tell the king that he's going to hang Mordecai. And yet the king says this in Esther 6, 6. Look at Esther 6, 6 with me. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, 
which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. It's hilarious. Mordecai comes to the king to say, I'm sorry, Haman comes to the king to say, I'm going to kill Mordecai. The king says, bless Mordecai, Haman. So that night, Esther has Haman and the king again to another feast. In chapter 7, verse 3, Esther answers and says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would not have been I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Azahira said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The the king leaves the scene in anger. He leaves this banquet, this feast, and he walks into the garden. And Haman begins to plead for his life with Esther. You can imagine Haman thinking to himself, I need help. He begins to plead with his wife, with his life. And accidentally falls on top of Esther right as the same time that the king walks back in. He sees Haman. He is angry. And he has Haman killed on the gallows that was meant for Mordecai. God's people are saved by a young Jewish girl who had faith that God was working even if she couldn't see it. Now, there are three things I, I want us to understand from this story. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful story that God is in control even when we don't see it or understand it or know it. The first thing I want you to understand is God is working even when we can't see it. God is at work even when we don't understand. When things seem out of our control. Do you think that all of these things that happened in this story is happenstance? 
Do you think that God would place a young girl in the palace at the exact moment that Haman came to power? Do you think that he would place Mordecai at the exact place to hear about the plot to the king? Do you think that it was just happenstance? That the night before Haman wanted to hang Mordecai, that the king hears a bedtime story and rewards Mordecai? At the exact moment the king has left, he enters back with Haman falling on top of Esther. I mean, Hollywood ain't got nothing on this, all right? You see, God was working, and God had a plan. And we see that that even after Esther, the story of Esther, God continuing to bless through Esther. Who was it that sent Ezra and then Nehemiah in the coming years to restore the city, to bring the people back to God? It was the Persian king. Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, probably the son of Vashti, stepson to Esther. You see, in our world today, we know that God is in control even in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of wars and rumors of wars. God has a plan. And the reason why this is so important, this story is so important, because God's people would come together. They would rebuild this temple. They would rebuild their city. They would turn back to the Lord. And eventually, the Messiah who was promised, even from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he would come. And he would come and he would rescue and he would bring salvation to his people. And not only for his people, but the entire world. He would save them from this brokenness, from death. And give them eternal life. Church, God's story has already been written. The question is, are you going to be a part of his story? Just as Mordecai said, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. You see, God is going to accomplish all that he wills, The question is, will he be gracious enough to use us, the people of God, Northwest Baptist, to do his work? Will he use you? When the moment of faith Arises, will you have the faith to trust in the promises of God? Why not proclaim the gospel from the rooftops? Your time may not be the king's court. 
It may be sitting at the foot of the bed explaining the gospel to your child. It may be comforting a neighbor who has just lost their spouse. It may be, work, it may be at work through a Zoom call. Yet God has placed you in your position for such a time as this. Chris always quotes this verse, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ as Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are you ready? Your moment is coming when you must declare the hope that you have in Jesus. Number two, God uses normal people for extraordinary things. Esther didn't have the greatest beginnings, and yet she was willing to give her life. Sometimes we, like Esther, believe that, that God wants to bless us, to give us this position of authority, or this position of power, or this financial gain. And yet, what if God puts you in that position, not for those things, but to declare Him, to declare the gospel, to give you a platform? Esther says, if I go to the king, though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. I think all of us are learning something through this time. I think we're all learning that safety is a myth. We all know that we are just one phone call away. Our job, we have worked so hard our entire life, could be gone in just one second. Why not give your life to something that will last? Why not invest in the kingdom of God? Why not invest your life in discipleship relationships with people who you will spend eternity with? Why not give to the pursuit of the kingdom of God in advancing the gospel to the nations? Why not risk our life on something that is worthwhile That is eternal. Northwest Baptist, now is your for such a time as this. For God has placed you in the exact position you are in for a greater purpose than accumulating wealth and prestige. This is a time where God's people, his church, raises up in the coming months, in the coming weeks, even now. And they say, for such a time as this. Let us pray. Let us fast. Let us prepare our hearts for what God wants to do in and through us. It's no coincidence that God has placed you in the family that you're in, in the job that you're in, 
in the nation that you're in, in the position that you're in for the kingdom of God, for his purposes, to proclaim the gospel, to point people to Jesus who is worthy of worship, to respond to the hope that is in Christ, and to give account to those who have no hope. When you're in a pinch, when you're down, when you're lost, when you're lonely, when you're scared, that is the time to call upon the Lord and place your hope in Him. This is the time. This is where we are, Northwest. We're not the most impressive people in the world. We don't have the most money in the world. But God has placed us here for this moment. We are called to be witnesses to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you've gone through some things. Maybe you've been a victim of some things, just as Esther has in this story. And yet God wants to use you in this moment. Or maybe you're like Mordecai. Maybe just doing the right thing, just getting by. Not really wanting to rock the boat and then... Yet God wants you to be bold. He wants you to face your fears. Stand up and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only hope that endures. Maybe God has put you here for such a time as this. And this is our third point this morning. We learn from this story Now is the time for action. It's now. You can't wait. You can't hope that maybe maybe, uh, in a few days the king will call you. No, the king is... God put in my heart about four or five weeks ago this sermon... As of this morning, there have been 683,583 people infected with the virus worldwide. There are 32,144 people dead as a result. Those are huge numbers. We think about the the tragedy of this and and it breaks our heart. And yet there are millions of people, even in our own city, in our own state, in our own country, who will escape this virus. They will survive and yet tragically spend eternity in hell. There are 3.1 billion people in the world with little or no access to the gospel. 
Will you stand up and be counted as one who says, I will give my life for the sake of the gospel? One of the things that this season does is it reminds us what we're here for. The story of Esther reminds us that we're talking about life or death, eternal life, eternal separation from God. Church, stand up and be who God has created us to be, lighthouses for the gospel. In your home, in your neighborhood, all over the world, we get caught up in so many causes. And yet we're reminded that the gospel of Christ is the utmost importance. Now is the time. My challenge for you watching at home is to rise up to this moment for such a time as this. Northwest Baptist to be a Christ-centered church focused upon Christ. His great commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Christ says this, I promise, don't forget this. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Christ is with you. You don't have to do this alone. You may be sitting there going, I'm not sure what to do. Begin by praying that God would use you for his purposes and his glory. Begin by thinking about what you can do for your own family, for your neighbors, for your medical workers, for your church. And begin to prepare your heart for the days ahead. Because God is going to ask you as the church to rise up in this very moment and say, have faith. I'm working so that people will hear about me. They will hear of the gospel of grace and they will come. The church is not an organization or a building or programs or a pastor. The church is the people of God. And when God's people seize their moment and when they're available, will God not use them? For such a time as this, Northwest, for such a time as this, let us pray.